Welcome to The Daily Sales Show, hosted by Sell Better. Welcome, welcome back. Uh, I am excited to be here. You are excited to be here. We are amped to have you in the room with us. Go ahead and change your chat settings down at the bottom right-hand corner to everyone and let us know where you're tuning in from in the chat. Uh, Katie, I'm a pretty well-traveled fella. Uh, who's going to be first, do you think, to let us know where they're tuning in from? Well, I noticed on mine that there were some folks from Atlanta that were uh, tagged, so we'll see. Oh, I see ATL in here all the time. Chicago is first. What's happening, Mark Knight? It's been too long, old friend. Shout out to New York City, Boston, KC. I always reference the barbecue culture in KC. It's underrated. Sao Paulo, what is going on? Kirsten Woodbury, I can always count on you, Michigan representing. Jolly old London in the house. I like our international crowd. They show up in force. Shout out to Germany. I see you. They sell different in Germany. I <laughs> bet. <laughs> <laughs> Mexico City, what's happening? I'll be in Cancun at the end of this month. I'm excited about that. Uh, all right, guys, let's kick things off here. I know you're probably coming out of a meeting. Maybe you're coming off of a call. I'm going to launch this really quick so that you guys can tell us what you are. I know a lot of folks from Katie's Network came out today. Welcome back, everybody, to the Sell Better Daily Sales Show, where we bring you daily sales advice to help you sell better. Plain and simple, you're going to learn how to deliver effective demos today from Katie. Uh, Katie is the CEO of MMS Consulting, and she focuses on medical device sales. That is her specialty, but she can help sellers of all kinds. And that's what we're here to do today is help all of you to do better demos. My name is James Buckley. I'm your host. And before we kick things off, scan this QR code. Get the latest actionable tactics every day right here at The Daily Sales Show and explore our YouTube channel. This is where you can get highlights, tips, techniques, takeaways, templates, and more. So go ahead and do that. Uh, here's that screen. Sorry about that, y'all. <laughs> you are not sharing your screen. I just got that message. That is the QR code that you want. So take your phone out, scan that QR code uh, to get to our sellbetter.xyz channel uh, and learn more about Sellbetter. Uh, I want to give a big shout out to our partners right now. Uh, Zoom Info, longtime partner. These guys do the best in the world when it comes to data and how it impacts your business. So learn more from zoominfo.com. And also Vouch, welcome to the family. Video is fast becoming the norm in sales. So I'm dropping a link in the chat so that you can start using video for more than just your sales cycle. Vouch will allow you to use video for so many different functions at your business. So go ahead and grab that link in the chat right now so that you guys can get started with Vouch. All right, this is what you're going to get today. Let's get to it. You're going to learn some essential information that belongs in every demo. Katie's going to tell you some stuff that belongs in a demo. Uh, and then remove things that don't matter. There are some specific things that we all are guilty of that we can let go of. So that's an important thing you want to do. And then earning that credibility by leaving out the history. Put a one in the chat if you are told to start with your company history when you started in sales. Let me know if that was something that you got told. I got told that pretty frequently. Katie, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, this is going to be a good one because I think s demos are something that a lot of people struggle with on both fronts. Buyers don't really like to go to demos and sellers kind of drop the ball on demos. You had an experience recently that made you feel like you got set back to square one after you made some progress. And I think this is how many initial calls either never happen or they start off this way. Tell us this story about starting over. Yeah, sure. So when I started my company, I became the CEO, you know, according to LinkedIn. So I started getting a lot of calls. Most, I would say more emails than calls, but I did get a call one day and I really liked the guy that was selling to me. He was listening to me. He was interactive and what he was telling me about, I was mildly interested in. So we had probably a good 20 minute chat. I devoted, you know, he interrupted what I was doing, but I liked him and I had this great conversation with him. 
And so he he asked me, do you want to see it? And I said, sure, let's hop on Zoom or whatever. And he he said, oh, no, no, I'm not your sales rep. I, I had to pass you on to somebody else. So I was immediately sort of taken aback. Well, but I like you. I don't want to move on to somebody else. But I agreed to it anyway. Well, then a couple of days later, a couple of days later, I get an email from his account manager or AE. And he said, hey, I'm really looking forward to our, our demo coming up. If you can fill out this quick survey that will really help me understand your needs. And so I knew wrote back and said, well, I already explained all my needs. I took 20 minutes out of my day on Monday to explain all my needs to whatever the guy's name was. Can't you just talk to him and find out what my needs were? And he was like, no, no, it'll it just be, it'll work so much better. It works great if you could fill out this survey. Well, of course, I didn't want to fill out the survey because I'd already devoted all my time. So I just said, forget it. I wasn't even that interested anyway. I'm I'm done with this. And so James and I were talking about how I think this is a great example of why these it doesn't work to do it that way you're putting too much you're putting too much responsibility on the on the sell on the buyer rather than on yourself when you do it that way it's bad enough in my experience that sdrs tend to ask us very surface level questions as buyers and they they ask us questions that usually end up being irrelevant in the long term but they're forced to ask those questions then you're finally through that part of it and you're excited as a buyer and that tire is deflated when you get that email that says, here's a survey for you to do before you meet with me. And the survey is exactly the stuff that you talked about with that SDR. That's That really rubs people the wrong way. And they do feel like they start at square one. No shockers here. A ton of account executives in the room. Over half the people in the room are account executives. And a big thank you to the frontline managers and the senior leaders that are coming out to learn more. We appreciate you. Shout out to my 14% SDRs in the room that will eventually become people that do demos. And some SDRs, let me know in the chat, do you think SDRs should be doing demos? Yes or no? I'm curious just in the chat what you guys think about that. Let's move forward a little bit here. You gave me two scenarios that I think are probably the most common scenarios. And I w we should probably clarify, MQL, Marketing Qualified Lead, these are people that raise their hand. They filled out a form. They want more information. They check the box that says, please contact me. Those are MQLs, Marketing Qualified Leads. And for those of you that are in Katie's world that aren't familiar with SDR, Sales Development Rep, old calls, cold emails, get interest and attention from people that had no intention of giving that to you. I just wanted to give you the context here. These two scenarios are most common for people that do demos. They get a marketing qualified lead or an SDR passes them that lead. These two meetings start off different. Katie, how do they start off in a more effective way than what you normally see? Sure. I'm going to start with the the one that comes from the SDR. Okay. So in my opinion, the, the way that that call should have gone with the with my scenario is that sales rep should have said, hey, I noticed you talked to you know Tyler, whatever his name was, this is what he shared with me. This is my understanding. And then spend a few minutes sharing with me what my kind of reiterating what I already told Tyler and then asking me, is that still accurate? Is there anything you want to add? Yep. And opening it up to me right from the start and but telling me, hey, I, we heard you. We we understand somewhat, but we have some more work to do, but we're, we're listening. So that would be the ideal scenario in the for, for the what, if it came from an SDR. For the market qualified lead, I think it's somewhat similar and you still want to start with them, but you even ask a question and you say, hey, we got your lead. We're curious what made you want to reach out. Help us understand what problems you're having that led you to, to contacting us. And then use silence. That's one of my biggest keys and biggest takeaways as a sales rep is that silence is very uncomfortable. But 
the as humans, we want to fill that silence. And if we can let the silence be filled by the customer rather than us filling that silence, we're going to be so much better off because they're going to tell us exactly what we need to know to be able to tee it up to win the deal. If we don't let them talk and we don't give them that silence, then we're just talking about ourselves and customers don't care about us. We're going to talk more about how customers don't care about us as we move forward here. Um, I think it's interesting that more AEs, account executives, account managers get MQLs and they just immediately share the screen. Do you feel like sharing the screen early is a hack or something that's outdated and there should be more conversation before you show them anything? I have another follow-up question after that, but I'm curious what your thoughts are, especially because we're from two different industries here. Right. No, for sure. And I equate it to, you know, if you were in a meeting in person, which I have been many, many times, one of the biggest mistakes you can make is everybody comes in usually with like a big packet of data. And if you start passing that out to everybody at the beginning of the meeting, you're going to notice as you start talking, they're not even listening to you. They're literally leafing through the packets of information and you lost them. So that's one, in my opinion, a real hack of, a, of an in-person meeting is don't pass out the packets till the very end. And I would equate the the the, um, the screen to something very similar. You know, it's much more exciting to see somebody's face and facial expressions and have a conversation than it is to see a bunch of PowerPoint slides. That's we death by PowerPoint is you know one of those common terms that everybody is familiar with. So I would definitely agree. With the last thing we want to do is just start it off by, hey, here's a bunch of PowerPoint slides. Yeah, um, I'll I'll just give a quick experience that I had when I first started in SaaS, uh, 2015, 2014, somewhere in that area. It was very common for people to jump on calls, and I think AEs would just say, "All right, is everybody? Can everybody see my screen? Great, I'm going to go through these features. Feel free to stop me if you have a question." They go through like 15, 20 different features, and then stop and be like, "What do you think?" And I would imagine that if there were five or six people on that call, maybe one of them was able to chime in and be like, oh, this was interesting. But the other four, they might as well not even have been in the room. This is common. How's that changed today? How should it have changed or how has it changed? How has it changed? I mean, we're you know seven years down the line here, eight years down the line. What's different about it now? Why, why is it vastly different than that today? I mean, I think it should be different. I'm not sure everybody's actually doing it differently than this. Okay. I, I think that there's still a lot of people that are doing it the way that you've described and that are coming in and they feel like, oh, I need to show them what's what what they have to offer. And they're just too much on the mindset of, I need to show myself and my company rather than focusing on the customer. And I think the smart sales reps probably have changed over to talking more about themselves, not not about themselves. But I think from the when we're going to get into this uh, post that I did, but from that, I think there's still a lot of people that are doing it the old way for sure. Yeah. I don't think it's changed as much as we might like to think it has, <laughs> especially from my customer research that I've done. The customers are still telling me that people are still doing this, where they come in and just kind of you know show up and throw up, as they say. Yeah, show up and throw up is a, a term we hear a lot, and it's something that John talks about frequently when he gets on here and starts talking about the norm. Right, we have to do something that's different. We have to do a pattern interrupt, and that leads very well into this process that you provided for everybody. So you gave us three steps that are a little bit counterintuitive. When you gave me these, and then you said and then you can do qualification. I was like, what? So talk to me about these three steps. Why are these important before qualification even begins? Sure. So you might be familiar with uh, someone named Neil Rackham. He wrote a book back in the 80s called Spin Selling. 
And Neil, when he first started his research, he was wanting to go prove that the more you closed, the more sales you would get. So, and then, so his thesis was, if we can teach people how to close, they will do better. So, you know, always be closing. Well, when he went out there, he found actually the opposite, that the more they taught people to close and the, the more the hard close was there, the actually the less sales they were able to close. Mm. And so I, I equate that to sort of like the, the hard close versus the soft close. And, and then I take that one step further and say, there's the hard open versus the soft open. So when we call some someone, we've got to disarm them. We've got to do a soft open. Otherwise, if they're going to run screaming from us being like, oh, there's a sales rep coming. I hate them. I don't want to talk to them. I need to get them off the phone immediately. So we come in and we ask soft questions that allow one that make them want to start talking to us. Then once they feel like, okay, things are going okay. I like this person kind of like I did with the Tyler example. He's all right. I guess I'll keep talking to him. Then we've got to ask what I call wedge questions, which is we've got to understand our business well enough to ask questions that are intelligent. So instead of just saying what keeps you up at night, we've got to ask specific questions like, is such and such ever an issue for you? Do you ever encounter a situation where X and you're sharing a situation that you know sometimes occurs? And then you use that silence to see what they have to say. And then once they start talking to you and feeling like, hey, here's someone who understands me. Here's someone who's going to let me talk. This person might actually get to solve one of the problems I have that's when we can start doing the qualifying questions because qualifying questions don't benefit the customer they benefit us who wants to know those qualifying questions of you know time frames and decision makers it's the boss it's the boss and that doesn't benefit the customer that benefits me as a sales rep and me as the as the company so we can you know get a little leeway to get those questions answered once they get some trust going with us but not before and then once all of that has occurred then we get to step three, which is frame up your solution and put up your slides. Yeah. And this part is the part that I think sales reps need to really tune into because once they've identified that problem, this is where your solution has to fit. Don't force it to fit. Right, Katie? Right. It has to actually fit. If you try to find that workaround or you try to frame it in a way that is inauthentic or it doesn't fit what they're discussing or what their context is, you're going to end up looking like you just want the clothes and you don't really care if it solves their problem. This is like something that buyers smell very quickly today. Am I right? For sure. Absolutely. And, you know, I think some of it's just being, you know, inexperienced where you just think, you know, or you've heard it before. So you assume that everybody's still in that same way. Or sometimes it can be where you're nervous and you think you, you hear them say this, these golden words of, oh, we might want such and such. Or, you know, we have the such and such problem. You want to jump on it immediately and just say, oh, that's so great because we can completely solve that for you. But if you had continued to listen, maybe it was actually a different problem that's evolving. It's a good it's a good point. You know, you're not always solving the problem that you think you're solving. And sometimes it's completely different out of left field. We got to be ready for that thinking on our feet. Now, I asked earlier if you guys were told to begin with your company's history. So I'm going to launch this question now. Do you currently begin with a company history and it's okay this is anonymous while you guys are answering that i want to ask this question this one came from manuel i hope you're all right if i call you manny manny says our prog our process in our org is a little bit different we use uh sales engineers se's to run our demos since our product is a little more technical typically our account executives aes start the demo off with three to five slides and then we hand it over to the sales engineer this is nuts already manny uh, what's your suggestion with a process like this so that it could be better or improved? Katie, 
I know you have a thousand things running through your head right now. Yes. So first of all, I like that process for in my world, that would be similar to bringing in a clinician, you know, a nurse to talk about it, which people typically really like because an expert's always good. But I would still start the process off the same way. The AE starts in by saying, this is what we understand about your pain points, the situations that you're having. This is what we are understanding you care about. Is there anything you want to add to that? And does that sound right? And in that whole time, that sales engineer is quiet. They're not chiming in. They're just listening. They're gathering information. And then once we feel like we understand well enough, including the sales engineer, I think the sales engineer needs to understand, hey, just because you think that you should do a demo in this certain way, you need to be listening when the customer's talking and you need to adjust your demo for what the customer is saying. And then once everyone feels like we're on the same page, we we understand where their pain points are, then at that point, we hand it over to the sales engineer. And I think it's important to point out, hey, we brought in this sales engineer to help you because we we think you really need a product expert and this is why he's here, he or she. I think it's a good intro for a sales engineer. Uh, also, there's an edification there, right? This is so-and-so, they're a subject matter expert, right? I'm I'm a salesperson. I'm not a subject matter expert. They're going to be able to help you on the technical side. You're welcome, Mandy. I appreciate you. Uh, I bet that's a good question for a lot of you in the room that have a similar flow. I want to get back to this set of three steps here because these steps were counterintuitive to what we're normally taught. It looks like, let's see some of these results here. Bam. A lot of people giving up on the company history. Great for you. Uh, to those 10% that still kick it off, just replace that with something that's more customer-centric why you're on the call, what you'd like to get out of the call today, uh, the problem they're trying to solve, basically anything other than the company history because they do not care about it. Uh, counterintuition. I feel like qualification is something we're always told to do first. But when we do these three things first, we get to earn the right to qualify them. Something that I think a lot of reps need to understand is this statement right here that you made that I really love. Qualification does a lot of things for us. What it does not do is enable our prospects to purchase. How'd you come up with this? Why do you think this is true? Uh, is it counterintuitive? You know, the, the uh, there, I did a podcast one time with the um, a director of purchasing from a hospital chain. And one thing he told me was, he said, I don't want to be interrogated. Don't get me on the phone and start asking me all these questions that maybe A, you should have known the answer to. Right, right. He's like, I literally feel like I have, you know, like a light on me, shining on me. Tell me everything about the deal. And sometimes they don't know what the decision makers should be. Sometimes they don't want to share that information. Sometimes they don't know the timing or the budget or all the things that we're supposed to ask. And so if they feel like they're being interrogated, it's they they know they're smart enough to realize you're just going to share this with your boss and you're wasting my valuable time by getting all this information. So I think that's the thing we have to remember is yes, we might they might do us a solid eventually to share all that with us, but that's all it is is them doing us a solid. Uh, do me a solid is great if it's not in a sales situation solids don't close deals <laughs> right uh you were kind enough to provide a list of pet peeves that you your customer research indicates people really dislike these experiences break these down for everybody and let me know in the chat which one are you guilty of one is at the top four is at the bottom which one are you guilty of let me know in the chat yeah. So when I first started my company, one of the things that I decided was we've all we've all read sales books. I know I've read tons of them and so, so many of them are awesome. Uh, but nobody's really ever asked the customers, what do you guys like? What do you mm. dislike? What are things that really, really bother you or irritate you? So I spent a bunch of time and I still continue to update it. Uh, I'm writing a book right now. So I'm updating my data every day. 
on, and I went out and asked hundreds of customers all across the country, a standard list of questions. And one of the questions I asked them was, what are your pet peeves when somebody does a customer presentation to you? It's sort of a, a dog and pony, as you will, whether it's a virtual or an in-person. And I heard a lot of things because this was an open-ended question and I asked hundreds of customers, but there were four that kind of kept bubbling up to the top as the most common that I would hear. Mm-hmm. And one of them was saying, we're, we're the best, you know, we're the only ones that can do this. And so that's why you should consider us. And it's just all self-serving. It's basically you're just bragging about yourself. Another one that we heard was negative selling. And I think this one is kind of interesting because as sales reps, sometimes we think to ourselves, well, we're just going to kind of shoot them straight. You know, we're just going to make sure they understand that this is what we can do that our competitor cannot do. And they're going to appreciate that we're really sharing that with them because it's going to help them understand. And I'm just going to be real honest with them. But the truth is customers don't like this. They are smart people and they want to be able to investigate that on their own and they don't want you to bash your competition. It's sort of like, you know, I I always equate it to my brother, you know, he's like, I could talk bad about my sister, but don't anybody else talk bad about my sister. You know, you don't. And when you bash the competitor, you have to remember too that they might've been involved in choosing that competitor. So when you're bashing the competitor, you might be bashing their decision-making. That's right. So that's that's the negative selling. Um, giving company history, I think we've already talked about this. And this one is a really interesting one because many slide decks, and that's awesome for for your listeners. You guys are, are you're here for a reason probably because you are in the know on research and what customers actually want, which is great. But a lot of companies and a lot of sales reps are still starting off with customer his, with company history. Yeah. They're starting off by saying, here's all the great things that I need you to know about me as a company. And customers do not like this. You can watch them, watch their eyes just completely glaze over. And they tell me this, I don't want to hear about your company history. I remember being part of a presentation one time where I was a junior sales rep. So I wasn't, I didn't get to make any decisions. I was just there listening. And we started off with the company history, literally going back to like 1972. And it was like a whole, you know, slide deck of, and then in the eighties, we did this, and then we did this, and then we did this. And people are just like, I don't care what happened in the eighties. And then the last one is, and I think this is one that people are very uh, guilty of, is showing products that are outside the scope of the project being discussed. And I think people do this a lot because they think, well, have them, have a captive audience. Let's make sure they understand all the great things that we can do. Yeah. Now that is nice. Sometimes people want need to know that, but we've got to get permission to to talk about that at the beginning because sometimes you're wasting valuable Q and A time by doing it. And there might be some people in there that have no interest in it. It's completely outside their scope. So we need to get that designed ahead of time. And if not, then maybe set up another time where you can go through that, where they're agreeing to let you go through that. There, there's some major mistakes in selling a hundred percent of your product at once. Um, John will often say sell to the 20%. Um, we can drop the link to the sell to the 20% article in the chat for you guys. But that, that's something I see a lot of reps do. I'm going to, and that goes back to my earlier, like, let me share my screen and then I'm going to show you 25 things. I, they really only want to solve for the one thing, sell the one thing and let customer success, get them to adopt the whole tool. That is a better flow for account executives since the majority of you are in the room are account executives. Uh, I'm going to launch this and then we're going to talk about it in a couple of minutes. How often do you actually change your presentation? We're going to lead up to this in a minute. Um, Something that happens often is that we make a lot of assumptions in our sales cycles. And I want to have a little fun with everybody. If you've heard this phrase before, drop the rest of it 
in the chat what happens when we assume uh we if you don't know the phrase i'll fill it in for you in a minute but what happens when we assume fill it in in the chat uh you told a story about an assumption you made and it kind of bit you in the ass tell me about that one for sure i mean i think that's a lot of what sales is about is making mistakes particularly as a young sales rep and then learning from them so one of the major mistakes that i made as a young sales rep was the product that i was selling at the time it was a, a blood pressure machine and everybody wanted it to connect with their charting system they wanted mm -hmm it to automatically go thin enough to write on a little piece of paper and keep the piece of paper in their pocket. That was kind of the standard workflow at that at that time. And so I was so excited when we finally came out with this. This I was running around telling everyone all about it. Guess what? We finally have it. Yay. But there was a customer that said, well, the first thing question he asked me was, do you guys do this? Do you Can you connect with the turning system? So I just assumed, of course, he's going to want to. Everybody wants to. So I was all excited. Yes, we can. And I told him all about it. And he was like, oh, shoot. Yeah, we don't want to do that. We tried that with, you know, such and such competitor and it did not work. And so we're going to stay away from that. But thanks anyway. And so then I had to backtrack and say, well, but you don't have to do that. That's just an option. You know, it's not required. It's just a cool thing that we can offer. Yeah. But by then he was like, oh, no, it's too, too complicated of a product, I'm sure. Yeah. So what I should have done and what I do now moving forward is ask the question, well, is that important to you? And he would have said, no, we don't want that because, and he would have told me the long story. And then I would have said, oh, okay, great. And then I would have just not mentioned it rather than assuming it was something he wanted. I think this is something we all do. Uh, I sell to Salesforce administrators. So when I get on a call with a Salesforce administrator, I'm going to immediately assume I know exactly what they're focused on. And when they tell me what they want, I'm immediately going to attack it. Even though they really didn't say they want it, they said they were interested in it we make the assumption we make that leap mentally uh that's great stuff let's uh let's end this poll right here when we get there we're going to talk about it you are talking about ideas changing things testing new things always being ready to adjust the way we deliver a good solid demo break these points down these are great actionable things that you guys should start thinking about as you move forward and do more and more demos talk to me about these these tips Sure. Yeah. So I'm a big fan. I mean, uh, so much of what I write about and teach about are things that I've just literally tried out myself. Maybe it's subject line that I tried that just, oh, wow, that one really worked or whatever it is. But I do always try to try something at least 20 times, because if you just try it a couple of times, let's say that your success rate typically is, you know, 20% on whether it's an, an email or a demo or a phone call or whatever it is. If you're only trying it five times, then you're not getting enough of a sample to figure out if that's really working or not. Yeah. So I always try something at least 20 times, sometimes even more, and then you can get a really good feel for whether it's working or not. But if it's not working, I'm a huge fan of just dump it and try something else. And I think it's really, I, I, I know that when I used to make calls on a daily basis, which I still do to some extent, but not as much as I used to, I would find things that would actually work and I would I would write it down and I would reuse it. And a, and a great example of this is actually somebody that I train and she told me this was all during COVID and everybody was working from home. And she she said, you know, I was making my calls. She was brand new to sales. And she said, I had a delivery guy come to the door and right, literally right as I was getting ready to talk to this customer. And so he had answered the phone and I was getting ready to respond. And I said, before I introduce myself, I just want to warn you that a delivery man is at the door and my dog is about to bark. I'm so sorry about that. And he got a good laugh out of it. And I got a good laugh out of it. And it completely broke the ice. And she's like, it worked so well that I just started using that for everyone because it worked. And so when you find something that works, just keep doing it. 
And then I, I'm a, a big fan of revising and revising and revising and not not just decks, but everything that you do and trying to tweak it for the customers. I think it's so important. Yeah, it looks like the the majority of the folks that took part in the vote here, a percentage is customized for every prospect. I, I can't stress the importance of that enough. I don't do enough presentations, as many as I should, but the ones that I do, I really try to like make it for them. You know, John's very good at like adding their logo, uh, making sure that it has like the same vibe. Leslie Douglas is very creative with the way that she uses all the company's stuff internally when she does presentations. Uh, all of our folks tend to take that extra time and that step. I think it adds to the credibility as you're going through the demo. For you other uh, 18% that say you change it quarterly, uh, you know, maybe this is a time to kind of reel that reel that in and do it a little more often because a lot's changing very fast. So I might recommend you take that step. Uh, okay, so the testing process aside, there are some questions about what belongs in a customized deck. So customizing a deck is nice, but you say that you don't have to customize the entire thing. So talk to me about what needs to be customized in a deck. Sure. Yeah. And there's some some great data from Sales Loft that shows that when you're doing an email, 20% yeah. is kind of the sweet spot of customizing. So if you do more than that, you're kind of wasting your time. You're not getting that much out of it. If you do less than that, you're kind of wasting, you're you're not getting enough out of it. I, I haven't seen any data on the actual deck itself, but the way that I would do a deck if I was doing it is I would start off with I, honestly, I wouldn't even the, the beginning of the deck. I wouldn't even do that much because they you're as we talked about before. You're better off to just have a conversation and say, "This is what we understand. These are the things that I took notes on," and then you customize your deck to make sure. For example, if they're not interested in the charting system integration, then you don't even put that in there. You hide that slide so that when you present it, you're not even mentioning that. Or maybe they're not interested in you know some other feature that other people are typically interested in. You take off all the things because you do such a good job with your discovery and your prospecting at the beginning that you fully understand maybe they literally just have one key issue that they're wanting that we're just going to totally focus on that. Or maybe they do have you know three different things that they care about, but we're not going to present all 12 things that make us great because they might not care about those. So I think every deck needs to be pretty customized to each customer. And But I know in your world, you guys do tend to show demos bef before maybe you've had a chance to customize the deck, but I think you still adjust your, your you, you just fast forward through that slide. Okay, we're not going to talk about that. You didn't care about that. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a, an argument that can be made here. And John is, is pretty good about kicking off presentations where he said, you know, I got about 60 slides here, but wouldn't you prefer to tell me what you want so that I can show you the five or six that matter most to you? never has anybody been like no thanks show me the whole 60 slides <laughs> right it just doesn't happen right. 60 sounds like a lot of slides <laughs> but one of the things i want to drive home here is the uh post that you put up and this is the proof y'all uh, we talk about data a lot here i don't think i've ever seen a more clear data pres data supported fact that no one gives a shit when you were invented look at the amount of impressions and reactions here, uh, what has this taught you? What has this told you? All this, all this engagement on this very simple post. What has it told you about the buying ecosystem today? Of course, the LinkedIn algorithm. One of the things it really loves is a little bit of controversy, and so I think the reason that this particular post did so well is there was a little bit of controversy. Not everyone agreed with me, so you know, probably I estimate that about ninety percent of the comments were like people saying, "I completely agree with you." I had yeah. customers commenting on it. I had 
you know, buyers. I had all kinds of people commenting and saying, you know, this is so right. And salespeople, obviously a lot of you guys agree, but there were about 10% that did not agree that, and they mm. just don't want to give up that, you know, there are people who said things like, I really do think that, you know, people need to understand our company history. We have such a rich history. They need to understand they can trust us. And so I think that's the people who believe what, like we do, that it's, that, that, that this is the accurate thing. They are real passionate about it. And the people who believe the opposite seem to be real passionate about their point of view as well. Yeah. And I have found too that m the marketing department tends to be, for whatever reason, more apt to show that com that history at the beginning. So sometimes it's a fight really with the marketing department of them saying, we please don't make us do this anymore. We don't want to do this <laughs> versus the, the marketing department saying, no, we really do. I have never heard of anybody buying a product and then coming to me saying, I bought it because they're older. <laughs> right. And around longer. It never happened to me too. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about what can happen instead, because we like to give actionable stuff. We don't just criticize. We tell you what you can do instead. So it can be argued that the history and the origins of your organization getting left out might damage your credibility and it could take a hit. Um, how can people earn the credibility if they're going to avoid telling that custom that company history? I'm not totally against ever talking about company history. It just doesn't have a place at the beginning of a sales deck. So customers are very smart people and they probably have done all the research. If you're there doing a presentation, they've probably done research on you enough to know that this person is credible, they're trustworthy, they're a good company. So first of all, they probably already know that information about you. I think it's best to keep it in your deck, put it at the very end. And then if they say, let's talk about who you are, I want to understand and make sure to feel comfortable with you, then you can share it in the Q&A part. Or you could even say, if you really feel strongly about your company history, at the very end, you could say, now I do have a little bit about us if you, if anybody would like to hear more about it. Yeah. Probably they're going to say, no, we're good. <laughs> but you never know. You can still have it in there and have it as an option. You don't have to put it in the trash. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Michael Jameson has here appendix slides for the win. I appreciate that too. Uh, not only that, but like you could sprinkle a little company history on your your other slides too, right? A little logo at the top that says founded in 1971, you know, probably wouldn't hurt you. Let's answer some questions. Okay, you ready to answer some questions from the peanut gallery? Absolutely. Okay, use the emojis, y'all. On the right side in the chat, there's a little smiley face. Click it and send me an emoji in the chat if this has been useful for you. Uh, okay, this one comes from Michael Jameson. Shout out to Michael. How do you tell a leader, a product, or a founder that no one cares about the company history or the bells and whistles in a specific feature, a dashboard, for example? I think Michael's question is, how do you tell the leaders that this sucks? <laughs> right. Well, I think you could feel free to blame it on me. It's like I always tell my kids, you know, if, if there's something that you don't want to do or tell someone, you could just blame it on your mom, say your mom's being mean. So I think you can tell them, hey, listen, there's been customer research that's been done. Here's this girl who has all this research on it. Let's go with the customer research and blame it on me. Let them look it up for themselves and let them know, understand it better. And you know, one other thing that I will say about the company history is one way that you can talk about your company history in a way that is helpful is to actually say, we've been around for so long that we have gathered a lot of customer data. And what we've heard from customers is that they want a product that's designed like X. And that's why we've designed our product to meet X. Yeah. So if you really want to talk about your product, I think that is helpful sometimes to say, we got feedback from people. Our product didn't used to be great because blah, 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 but now we fixed it and here's why. And that I think is meaningful to customers. I, I think that's a great nugget there is tell your customers stories in this moment instead, right? 
uh, the the part about coming to your boss, uh, my opinion has always been you should be doing what your direct reports tell you to do, but you should also be doing what you think is right. And then you should come to them in your one-on-ones with the data to support what you believe. Sometimes I got news for you. You're going to be wrong. Be ready for that. You know, uh, but I think you should be doing both and using data to support your beliefs. That is the thing that registers most with sales leaders is the data that you provide for them to support what you're suggesting. Uh, so that's my opinion there. This one comes from Jenna. Shout out to Jenna. We appreciate you coming in. What are the key indicators that you've led a really successful demo and how do you end it strong? Great question. I think the key, one of the great indicators is how many questions are they asking and how interactive they are. If they're silent, they feel like they're not even listening or they're secretly checking their emails. Those are all signs that they are not, that, that it has not gone well. <laughs> you know, if they're asking a lot of questions and even interrupting you, I think that's a really great sign. And I think that's the the best thing that you can do then is to ask, what can we do now? What what else do you need from me? As opposed to here's what I need from you. And I'd like to provide you with X. What can, what can I help? What can I do next to move this forward? Yeah, I love that. Uh, what can I do next to move this forward is good. Uh, I'll give you one that I think most of our team uses. Before I let you go, what do you think will stop us from moving forward? This way you can write it down and think about it. And you could say, I'd like to address that on our next call. And that gives you the, the segue into like, let's get your calendar up and make that happen. Uh, great questions coming into the chat. Throw them in the Q&A. We're in Q&A segment right now. Mark Knight says, Katie, do you qualify meetings if they can buy in 90 days? How do you handle this process? I see a lot of SDRs saying yes and AEs saying no because it's not within the quarter that they're working in. Good disconnect between SDR and AE here. And that is true. Well, you know, I come from a little bit of a different world, but for me, I would never discount something because it's not going to close in 90 days. In fact, the the customer that I was talking about earlier that I made that bad assumption on, that had taken me over two years to even get to that point. Wow. I had followed up with him every month for two years before I got that opportunity. And I had his permission to follow up. He was like, sure, keep calling me and we'll see if anything changes. And I remember at the end of those two years, he said, all right, Finally, after all this time, Katie, I'm going to get to meet you in person because finally somebody wants to look at these monitors of yours. And so I I'm a big fan of, I think that the funnel has to be not just the, the first, you know, 30 days, first 60, first 90, but you've got to have a, you know, one or two year funnel or you're going to, you're, you're not, your business is not going to continue to grow. So I, I think it's long term is key. Yeah. There's a, an argument for change, I think, right? Uh, most, most AEs are trying to sell a product. That's not what you sell. You sell change. That's really what you sell. Uh, whether or not that change fits into the quarter that the salesperson is working to get it in at, or the buyer is working to get it in at, that's the thing that matters. <laughs> that's my opinion. Right. Uh, we had somebody recently on the show, we had somebody say, it's not about your sales process. It's about their buying process. I love that. Yes. Uh, this one comes from Matt Covington. Thank you for coming, Matt. What are What were the four positives like for clients other than customer stories, for instance, ROI, time to value, et cetera? How do we use these in our demos? So the opposite of the pet peeves, basically? Yeah. yeah. So well, one of the things I asked them is I said, give me, what, what is advice that you would give to your, to your, let's say that your niece or your nephew is going into sales and they're like, hey, you know, Uncle James, what should I do? Ironically, the 56% of customers used the same phrase, which I thought was pretty shocking considering it was an open-ended question. And the phrase they used was be friendly. And I think you can read a lot into this because being friendly seems so like, duh, of course. 
But the thing about sales reps is we get nervous. So we talk too fast. We try to do too much too fast. I heard that a lot. We are sometimes come off as being arrogant. There was one sale that I remember we did where we lost and we were all shocked that we lost. It had been one that we'd had, had the customer account forever. And then in the end we lost. And when we went back and did the deep dive, well, what happened? They said, we just were so arrogant, you know? And I was thinking, I can't believe they thought we were arrogant. I remember we were all nervous wrecks when we went in there. Yeah. It worked so hard to get it, to get the you know demo done the way they wanted to do it. And then they thought we were arrogant after all that. And I think it's because we just were nervous. We didn't smile enough. We didn't use enough energy. So, so that was, that's one thing that I think is absolutely key is to just be friendly in every single interaction you have with them, whether it's an email, whether it's a call, whether it's a demo, be, I just always be thinking about, am I coming off as friendly? Is that the, is that the perception I'm giving? And then, you know, of course, all the, all the other ones that you would expect to hear, you know, make sure that you show your, your ROI, but you know, you'd be surprised how often you actually don't hear that. I think that's sort of just a given. And they also take that sort of on themselves of, I'm going to figure out whether what the ROI is there or not. You don't need to necessarily show that to me. There's a fine line between cockiness, arrogance, and confidence, right? And we have to know where that line is. Uh, I always recommend that people do their demos in front of a mirror as if they were doing it with themselves. Note note your body language. Note Mm -hmm. the way you're speaking. Does it make you feel some type of way? That's the way your prospects are going to feel. Right. Right. And smile. Work on smiling. Even though you don't feel like you should smile, do it anyway. No, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be a good time. You're supposed to enjoy selling it. They're supposed to enjoy buying it. Don't forget. All right. Good question from Anetska here. Write phrases down that win. That was something you said. Do you have a kind of framework or a modular where you have placeholders and pieces that keep these things ready to go for you? So I do. I recommend a call script actually that um, okay. that people work from, and and kind of constantly tweaking it. And I actually do have some worksheets that are that I'm going to um, show in my book and that I do in my sales trainings where I have, you know, just kind of standard ones that I have that work. And then people can go through and pick like I like this phrase. Like for example, one of the ones that I stumbled across that I think is really great is often people say, is this a good time? Or they'll say, is this a bad time? And if our customers like to do the opposite of what we say. So if you say, is this a good time to talk? They're going to be like, no, it's not. It's a bad time. But if you say, is it a, is this a bad time? They're going to often be the opposite. It's fine. It's okay. But I like to go even a step further. My favorite phrase is, are you swamped? Because I think that's so much of a, a more conversational phrase than is this a bad time? Yeah. So that's just an example of one. But yes, I do think it's important to get your call script Put, put in there what you think you want. And then if you get that phrase, you stumble across the phrase like I did. Oh, are you swamped? I love that phrase. Put it in there and remind yourself to do it in that in the beginning, the first 10 seconds are crucial. The first 10 seconds set a tone for the rest of the call. That is a huge tip right there. How are you going to open your first 10 seconds really do matter. So dial it in, y'all. Jay Skinner, uh, to answer your question, this broadcast did not happen as a result of uh, Katie and I disagreeing, but the disagreements in the chat in the thread from her post did prompt us to say, hey, this is actually a great topic. So that was the origin of this conversation. Katie, how can people connect with you? Where would they go? Why would they do that? Well, that I would love for them to. So I'm on LinkedIn, of course, and I think you guys are going to put, oh yeah, there's my, uh, there's my contacts. Um, so you can connect with me there and feel free to message me, uh, you know, comment on my posts. I, po- I try to post a couple times a week. And then I do have a book coming out that I'm going to be writing and I have on my website, there's a, a link to pre-order the book. It should be out in the fall. 
So we'll we'll get that link added, and um, you know, I hopefully I'll get to be on here again, so we can uh, reconnect again sometime. Uh, when the book goes down, we're definitely going to do it. Let me know in the chat if this has been useful for you. If you're going to start doing some of the things that were on here, uh, I want to thank you guys for coming out so often. You guys show up, show out, be active in the chat, invest in yourself, learn, develop, change, grow. This is the nature of what we do at Sell Better. That is what you can learn when you follow us on social. Right here, you can follow us on all of these platforms where we're putting out consistent information. Katie, one final thought for everybody. What would you have everybody coming away with knowing from this show? Yes, my final thought would be customers don't care about you. <laughs> they truly, we care about ourselves. And they, it's customers especially don't care about you. So every single interaction you have with them, be worried about being friendly and be worried about keeping it about them and not about you. There you go, y'all. It's a tough pill to swallow, but the truth is we don't matter. The value that we bring our customers, that's what they care about. We'll see you guys tomorrow for another stellar Sell Better show with another great guest to help you sell better. Talk to you later, everybody. Thanks, everyone.